How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Science Show Podcast, episode 74. Oh, man. Whoa. Oh, you see I held the four there? Yeah, no, I like it. That was uh, keep it fresh and interesting. Keep it fresh with a PH, Jake. How are you Whoa. doing? I, this has been the longest week ever, man. The longest week this, ever. We did 2,074 weeks, and it's been the longest week ever this week. Yeah. Well, I was referring to my entire life. Oh. Uh, maybe not, but no, you're right. We did we did 2001 a week ago. That we was did. like a month ago. We did. It's kind of crazy to think about that that was a week ago because, yeah, it's been a big week. Yeah, crazy. Just a lot of things happening. We caught up a lot. It was good. We did. We did. We hung out a lot. I literally just thought in the corner of my eye my laptop was falling off the counter it was on, so that kind of freaked me out a little oh, bit really? just then. <laughs> it's um, safe. It's safe. Yeah, I know. It was your birthday. <laughs> yes, I turned 23 yep. years old. Uh, didn't Taylor Swift sing, sing that song, No One Likes It When You're 23 or whatever? Oh, yeah, you said that many times. Yes, on the I will be <laughs> joining that club later this year. But Yeah, yeah. you will. Uh, we went out for man. a couple of drinks, had a nice chill time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Pretty pretty chill weekend. We had a couple of movies we've watched over the past week. So. That's the one. Well, I think you're more excited than anyone about the the footy coming back. Yeah, I watched a lot of footy on the weekend. Mm. A lot of footy. So um, that one. was a predominantly a big part of my week. Uh, watched a lot of the games. Now, uh, I, I, I can't point which episode we did this. I'm pretty sure we both predicted that they would do fake crowd sounds, which they have now. Yes. That's, that's something they've done. Um, and it sounds better. So, it sounds pretty good. I was surprised as well. Because um, cause Aussie Australian rules football is such a fast-moving game, you often mm. don't see the crowds, but hearing the crowds is important. Right. So, because obviously the game moves so fast, you're not really focusing on the crowds all that much. But, yeah, it, it does make a difference not having, just even having that bedrock sound effect there. But things are moving pretty fast in Australia, so probably will be before too long, we'll be... <sighs> Having real oh crowds God. back in, back in no time, I think they've yeah. literally one of the games had two thousand people at it. Oh, really? Yeah, the first uh, the game in South Australia. So we're in Western Australia, right. and was and, it what the first game of the whole the round? Uh, no, I think it's the third or fourth game, but it right. was the it was the South Australian derby between the two South oh, Australian gotcha, teams, gotcha. and they were allowed two thousand people. That That's pretty game. cool. So, and it did make a little bit of a difference because they, they were more authentic. Although the Foley works, it's more a bedrock feeling. Um, you don't get the authentic in-the-moment reactions, and it's impossible yeah. to get those. Well, that's why I I put my, I poked my head in for the very first game, which was a draw. Yes. Which AFL draws are not hugely common. No. And uh, I thought that. I was like, usually you get the crowd's like reaction to it being a draw, and I was like, this is just a dude in a dainty office with a lever. <laughs> Deciding. Yeah, a fader, just Deciding. riding a fader. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, I think this does work into our like film podcast because obviously live audio visual medium. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is an audio visual medium, and I think that it also plays into the consistent ongoing conversation that we've been having. Obviously, with everything moving forward progressively well in Australia, mm. even though other parts of the world are also just electing to move forward with everything to do with the pandemic, for better or worse. Um, in Australia, it's it's predominantly for better. A lot of parts of Australia are uh, COVID-free, or at least very down, very unlikely to have big mm. numbers. Um, so obviously that plays into the conversation about cinemas, and right. as we've constantly talked about it multiple times over the the past few weeks, 
Um, they're not looking like they're going to be bringing Tenant early July. Well, they delayed it two weeks since the last episode. So yeah. I'm curious about that. Well, what they're doing, they're putting Inception in, in that two-week block. So it looks like they're actually going to test it out, see if people come to a cinema or not. That's cheap. But who's going to go to see Like, I mean, we probably will. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. If well, we're Loon, bored. Loon is open, I think, July 2nd. So we're we're sorted over here. Yeah, I mean... Or whatever comes out our Well, way. you think Dirt Music's going to... I'm pretty sure that will drop on July 2nd with Luna. Mm-hmm. Like, well, they've already penned their... Like, they're doing another screening of The Room, and now they're doing their cat screenings, where you can dress Perhaps up Perhaps maybe some... we need to have a date at The Room. Oh, I like it. I like it. Um, but, um, so, they, 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 the gears are rolling over here for sure, mm-hmm. but you're right, Tenet is different because, you're right, it's a big blockbuster summer film that they want to make a profit on. Mm-hmm. So, I like, I'm, I'm fingers crossed that it does at least come here at the end of July, like they're saying now, but you're right, it is circumstantial, and... It's day by day, this information. And, yeah, because yeah. just because things are starting to move back to normal in America, they're not nearly moving at the same pace that we are over here. Mm. And that plays into the conversation. I mean, uh, China is one of the biggest forms of revenue for world cinema. And uh, they recently went back into lockdown in Beijing because of a big outbreak oh, wow. that happened in Beijing. So... Um, Obviously, you don't want to focus too much. We don't want to be another medium that focuses too much on talking about the pandemic. But it does <laughs> correlate that, yeah. to uh, the discussion of film and what's new in cinemas. And um, it probably we're probably going to be sticking to what's new in streaming platform section over what's new in cinemas <laughs> for at least another month, maybe longer. Well, that's a good point. Let me check what week that July... Second ends up on because that's a Thursday. That's three weeks from now, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that will be. I think that's that's the week we do our thirties discussion. So that's actually the final week we're finishing out. Yeah, because today's fifteenth. I've got the calendar. It open might be the f- the week before. We might be moving into. No, the week the week that our thirtieth film, which we we can't announce film. yet because we haven't done the poll yet, so we don't know which yes. film it is. Uh, it's later that week that the cinema's open again. Oh, okay. At least Luna. So wow. that's pretty that perfect is some timing. Good timing. There you go, Zeke. Nailed it in the park. Bro. Yeah, that's 100%. I, when I set up with this two and a half month plan, <laughs> I was like, yep, by the end of it, we'll be able to go back to cinemas. Yeah. Um, uh, but I do think that that's a sort of a point to talk about because mm. I don't know if we may be able to, maybe this would be a really good time for at least our show to focus more on Australian cinema because that might be one of the newer, the things we'd actually be able to tangibly get our hands on. Yeah, well, there's Dirt Music and then um, The Light, which is a film I talked about last week, locally shot in Kalgoorlie. Mm. That just went on Vimeo On Demand. So there's um, a lot of local opportunities for us to tackle. So yeah. maybe the next month or two, we can look into that. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to, um, especially <laughs> yeah. if they keep delaying things like Nolan's film. Christ. Um, but, I mean, you got to respect the fact that they, I mean, it's all in the business to make money. And if it's not going to make money, then... Uh, there's no real point in in covering it because, you know, if you release it just in Australia, it's going to get pirated one way or another. Like, there's going to be that sort of window there for that to happen. Mm. Well, that's Uh, what happened when everything went digital in those months. Like, when films like Guns Akimbo and, mm. like, Frozen 2 and stuff either went on streaming or were just immediately had rental availabilities online, it's like, boom, you can now download them illegally, so... You're right. It's something they got to think about. Yeah, exactly. 
So bridging into what we've watched this week, mm. Jake, uh, you kind of uh, held off to the last minute to binge all yours. Yeah, well, I, had, I had a long week, man. Yeah. A long week. So everything I'm, I'm about to talk about, I've watched in the last 24 hours, I'd say. That is some, these are going to be some hot takes. Oh, really? I don't think there's any hot takes. I mean by hot, like hot off the press. Oh, takes. I see. Yeah. Yes, you're correct. Hot off, hot off the Jake press, the Jake times, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Um, well, if, yeah, if you want me to jump in, I've had a mostly... Okay, so I watched a few films all in some sort of relation to the decade countdown that we've been doing these last several weeks in yeah. one way, shape, or form. I might as well start with, uh, earlier today, I finally watched Groundhog Day, which, of hey. course, is a Bill Murray film. It is so a Bill Murray film. Kicks off from our Ghostbusters discussion a couple of weeks back. I, too, have also watched a Bill Murray film in the last week. Oh. So oh, that's cool. a nice little... Uh... Look forward to that segue. It's oh. going to be good. No Sorry. worries, but which one did you watch? Yeah, no, I watched Groundhog Day. So, so Groundhog Day, what was the uh, the verdict? Um, I really liked it. I think Ghostbusters was funnier, which I know you don't agree with, but um, like I laughed in this film, I had a good time, but I just remember Ghostbusters like laughing more consistently throughout okay. the film. But I had f- I had a lot of fun with this one. I really enjoy Groundhog Day. Hmm. I think it's really funny, and it's yeah, I can say I was thoroughly entertained from start to finish in it. Um, but I do think it's funnier. I think it's uh, kind of Bill Murray comedy at its peak, in my okay. opinion. He's funny in it, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he is... He's, I mean, that's the joke, right? He's Bill Murray and everything. <laughs> doesn't <laughs> sort of really totally... Yeah, it doesn't reaction. totally change it. Um, I think if you like this, then you would enjoy Jarmusch's Dead Won't Die, oh, which yeah. we talked about a few weeks ago, because uh, I managed to get my hands on it and watch it. But... Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a fun film. It's got a really cool sort of framing device and some... Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I wrote some notes about that and how... It's interesting how each film tackles it, because you're right, there's a lot of other films that have done this formula, the, the, the day repeat cycle sort mm-hmm. of thing. For those who don't know, it is the, you know, every 6 a.m. he wakes up and it's the same day and he has to relive it over and over again. But unlike films like Freaky Friday or even Liar Liar to an extent, which is similar, it's just Jim Carrey can't lie... Uh, those are framed by a wish. There's some character who's created a wish or said something in passing that has determined the universe to create the situation. Mm-hmm. And Groundhog Day is very much sort of in the same uh, vein as that Nickelodeon film. I think it's like The Last Day of Summer, whatever it's called, where there is no explanation. It doesn't tell you. It just happens. And in this film, Bill Murray has to sort of... There's no clear way... There's no clear explanation for the why and why he turns it around, spoiler alert, at the end, the days continue, he fixes the issue. Yeah. But I kind of like that it's open to interpretation, at least in this film, because you can interpret as, okay, well, you look at the character arc, you look at how he's someone who's very career-focused, and now the world's stopped for him. He has to sort of slow down and look, kind of be kinder and nicer to the people around him and help them get through their lives as well. So it's like, you can take all those little bits, and of course he's rewarded, he gets the girl, you know, at the end. Yeah, I mean, so. it comes back to, it's uh, is it divine intervention? There's no, mm. is it something to do with the groundhog itself or something? Exactly, like that, which yeah. I like. They kind of played with by having him steal the groundhog in the car and yeah. drive around, but then that also doesn't solve the problem when he tries to kill himself, which is, <laughs> is yeah. really funny when he starts doing a montage of that. But no, I really I really liked all of that. And, and again, his arc, and the, it all just clicks. It all just works really well. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that's fair. Um, so my uh, Bill Murray film mm. was a the a Wes Anderson film, 
Uh, it oh, was I know what you're going to Life yep. Aquatic nice. with Steve Zissou. And um, I can't say, I, like, we've talked about Wes Anderson on the show. Uh, we put, uh, we did Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, which and we... um, Bottle Rocket. Yeah, uh, we've done we've done Bottle Rocket, and uh, so we've we've done some of the more from his more uh, I'd say traditional roots to the more quirky sort of he he definitely grew into the quirkiness I think yeah you can um, see it chronologically that he progresses more towards that style of filmmaking as and it goes. I think the Life Aquatic is kind of the bridge between mm. the worlds. Um, and I think because it's the bridge between the worlds, it's probably one of the least effective Wes Anderson films. Yeah, I, I agree with you in the sense that it doesn't hold a candle to either other side of his work. Because you're right, it sort of loses its identity in the middle there. Yeah, and I mean, like, I like we've both talked about, I think we both agree that we think in terms of the live-action realm, uh, Moonrise is both our mm. favourites, and then... In terms of the animated world, at least, I think Isle of Dogs I prefer over Fantastic Mr. Fox by hair. Um, it wouldn't okay. be, it would be, wouldn't be, uh, it would be a very close comparison between the two. Yeah. They're but both I, excellent. Yeah, I think I think they're both on four and a half for me. But mm-hmm. if I was to be very picky, I'd probably say Isle of Dogs was better. Um, but yeah, we both love those animated films. But uh, yeah, this is definitely probably. I mean, sadly, the worst out of the ones I've seen. I still mm. haven't seen uh, Rushmore. I think that's the only one left yeah. I have to tick off I now. haven't seen Rushmore or... Or um, the Dal Limited. And I haven't seen the Tenor Bombs yet. I have seen that. Okay. So um, so I think I've just got yeah the, the Darjeeling Limited left out of here. And those titles. <laughs> it's a tricky one to pronounce. Um, but the um, French Dispatch, I'm really keen for. Yeah, that's obviously... Excellent. Yeah, so yeah, the Darjeeling Limited, I haven't seen, and then I haven't seen, yeah, uh, uh, what's it called? Rushmore. Yeah, Rushmore. Um, obviously, all of his shorts, I haven't seen either, with the exclusion Uh, of the Bottle Rocket short. You're going through his letterbox now. Yeah, I'm literally just looking at it, but all of his features I have covered, except yeah, those two. Okay. Um, and then, of course, yeah, French Dispatch later this year, which it's still billed for later this year. Interesting. So I'm very interested to see yeah. if it will actually make it out. Tenet so. is absolutely the... Like, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen to that film. Well, and that's gonna be French the Dispatch is billed for November, so I think it's going to get its timed release. Yeah, yeah. We've still got time for that. Um, okay. And that's probably the film... If you had asked me at the start of 2020, it'd probably be the film I was most keen for. Mm, um, interesting. Which I'm not even a huge pro Wes Anderson. Like, I'm not like most right. filmies who are like Wes Anderson's the best director because he does quirky stuff. But in comparison to like Tenet and um, Dune yeah. and stuff, like just that's yeah, um, I probably I'm probably more a fan of um, you know Nolan and uh, man, what's the guy who does Dune? Oh man. Um... I'm forgetting. I'm going to feel real. Oh, I know bad. this. I know De- this. Denise Villeneuve. That's it. Yeah. There we go. Blade uh, Runner. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. I'm going Blade Arrival. That's what I think. Ah, yeah, first. yeah. Nice. Um, I'm probably more a fan of Villeneuve than I am of Wes Anderson. So. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely way more keen for French Dispatch, to be honest. Because I just, uh, I think there's something about, ben, like, I'm just keen to see Benicio Del Toro and something else, to be honest. Right. Um, Since Pain and Glory. Yeah. I haven't seen Pain and Glory. Or no, Pain and, you, oh, you Sicario, you mean? No, I'm talking about I'm talking about Pain and Glory. Your, oh, your favorite foreign film last year. No, that's Antonio Banderas. Yeah, that's what I meant. 
I was at Benicio del Toro. Oh, sorry. You're right. Yeah, yeah I'm don't. Going, I'm getting a brain fart. Yeah, You've I'm had a long week. Benders. I have had a long week. Thank you. So, um, yeah, but Saving Steve Zissou, uh, yeah, I feel like it was a good bridge between the two worlds. Um, I don't like it as much as even Royal Tenenbaums, which I think came out three years before that, that did. Mm. It was the film that he made after Bottle Rocket, which I think sort of has quirky. They both have quirkiness, but they're not on the same sort of level as things like Moonrise Kingdom. Mm. Um, it's definitely that, something he progresses in as he goes along. It's gotten more zany yeah, the longer it's gone absolutely. on, for sure. It was more like weird relationships prior to this. And like in Tenenbaums and in Steve Zizou, he sort of does weird relationships, but he doesn't. And the stories are, are definitely quirkier. Like this one's quirkier than Tenenbaums is. But yeah, I, I, it just didn't click for me as much as like uh, his later films, for sure. Fair but, enough. Um, still enjoyed it uh, well enough. I also managed to catch a, another Richard Linklater film. And we all know how much uh, I love. Oh, yeah, very nice. Uh, you talked about this... Ooh, a while back. A while back. Uh, Last Flag Flying. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Very nice. I really enjoyed it. We had an interesting conversation over chat over this film when I said to you... <laughs> and I, I know you didn't agree with me. I still don't agree with you, but... <laughs> um, obviously, Last Flag Flying involves three uh, Vietnam veterans uh, who haven't seen each other in three decades... Uh, Steve Carell's character uh, has kind of been a lifetime military server following a uh, discharge and um, has recently lost his son, who also enlisted in the Marines Hmm. in Afghanistan and um, has asked two of his Vietnam uh, war vet friends to help recover him and bury him. And um, obviously... uh, the other two, other than Steve Crow, are Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Brian Cranston. And I thought this film was a really good showcase for three uh, actors who have had serious roles, but have often been defined by mostly one or two roles in their career. And you didn't agree with me. Well, the, the thing... The, the thing that I disagree with, you said, like, oh, this feels like they finally had time to, um, what's the word? Not flex their muscles, but basically, this is a showcase to show their potential. That was the wording you used. And I said, well, I feel like their potential has been shown up before. Okay, well, but it's maybe, like, I mean, I think the point I was trying to make is for at least two of them, um, being Carell and, and more, more appropriately, Cranston. Cranston's obviously been defined by Breaking Bad in the last mm. decade. And then probably the decade before that was Malcolm in the Middle. Mm. Um, and they're two shows where, you know, he's a big character. He's a huge... I mean, he's the main character in one and then uh, a, a relatively central character in the other. And frankly, I think that um, you they were often attributed to just those roles. And um, Cranston, in, you know, in, in latter years, has actually had... Uh, other roles. I mean, he was in a Oscar-nominated film uh, for for oh, Trumbo. Trumbo. Well, he was uh, an Oscar-nominated actor. Yes, for dramatic. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's not like I think he's at least got that opportunity. I think Carell has finally, definitely, in the last five years, got that opportunity. Also, mm. I think he had a lot longer being tied to the show and then the comedy actor, and has only really had a couple of real serious roles. Um, 
I remember the first time I saw him in a series role, he was playing a, a stepdad character in The Way, Way Back. Have you ever seen that film? I, I really like The Way, Way Back, yeah. And he's horrible in that he's a film. Prick. <laughs> but it showed, that was the first time I, I ever saw him in a serious context. Right, gotcha. Because um, back then, um, I think that was 2012 or 2013. I'd say 2013, if I uh, had to guess. Yeah. yeah. And he was only. I mean, up until that point, he was the guy in The Office, which you're currently watching a lot of The Office. Yeah, about halfway through. Um, Yeah, he was Michael in The Office, Get Smart, 40-year-old virgin, Evan Almighty. Like, you're right, he was an established comedic actor. man, exactly, yeah. um, And I think that The Way Way Back was the first time he ever got to showcase something outside of that range. And I I know Lawrence Fishburne's been in a lot of things, Mm. but a lot of the time he either falls to the background because he's a part of a big ensemble cast, like in things like Contagion, where he's in it, and even Brian Cranston's in Contagion. No, he is too. But they they often are not. They're always kind of down the uh, the totem pole of actors if mm. they're in a big ensemble cast. And it was really nice to have a movie where it was like this was two hours of just all three of them, and they're all very yeah. distinct characters. Um, and some of the best. I mean, I I I think Linklater is one of the best writers for male characters, and. I say that with he gives them layers and he gives he he's not afraid to tap into the best and the worst traits of masculinity and he's done that in like that sort of boyhood trilogy that I've talked about a lot over the course of the show but he does it in these other films um you know and this is a great example of a film that honestly it's like it, it talks about sort of american patriotism and both sides of that coin mm. and um, you know, as two Australians watching that film, the fact that we can still get emotionally invested in that sort of kind of patriotism uh, logic, which, although we have patriotism, we don't nearly have as much passion for our military force. Mm. At least not ingrained into, like, our culture as it is in America. And I found myself getting incredibly invested in the film. So that's really a power to the writing. Well, I think it's more to do with the brotherhood of those three. Like, they're, they're all tied because of this larger thing that they're all devoted to. But I think in terms of us as an audience... But they're all scarred it, by the thing. They're all scarred, but it's there's the further brotherhood. I mean, my favourite scene in that film is when they're all in the train making oh, yeah, that's all the these... Best like, scene. It's, it's like that. They're all bound by this patriotic viewpoint and their scars from you know, the, the horrible things they've been involved in doing, but it's it's that raw brotherhood connection they have, that they're just friends. I think that's where the connection comes through to the audience. I think you got to attribute that to a few things, though. you got to attribute that to the writing. you got to attribute that to uh, the simplicity of the camera. Like, it mm. just allows the camera yep. to sit there and let these characters talk and perform. And and only the only time it ever goes away from the master wide is to have close-ups of each of the characters, mm. but it's not trying to do anything artistic with the shot. It's very much just being like, I'm just going to leave the camera here and you get to see these guys develop. It's very naturalistic. Mm. And he's got a really good, when he wants to do films like this, like all three of the films in boyhood, a lot of the time he just lets the camera sort of sit there. Yeah, it's not too flashy. No, it's not flashy. And it doesn't have to be flashy photography. Because the story tells itself and, you know, it allows us to really get attached to the characters and not necessarily the film's plot. Because at the end of the day, there's not really a bad guy in Last Flag Flying. Like, there's an antagonist, I guess the general maybe, but it's a very loose antagonist. It's very much about stealing with the grief, dealing with the past. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in in the textbook analogy, he's definitely the protagonist, the guy blocking the goal, so to speak. But you're right; it's not the focus. It's not the, it's not about the plot of them overcoming the obstacle. It's sort of the, the no. I mean, meta narrative happens under it's it. It's very much a man versus himself, or man versus themselves, and them confronting the actions that they had done in the past and how that led them to the now, and sort of very much just talking about the state of the world and the state of, mm. like, military mindset. And that really helps with um, their connection with uh, Steve Carell's son's best friend, who offers the young man's oh, perspective yeah. on the same sort of side of the coin. So it's a really, it's just really strong film for such a, you know, reasonably simple concept, but it allows you to dive in and really get to see... I think what I appreciate is I appreciate a film that allows uh, actors to to work and actually like showcase like their range as an actor. You know, it's like uh, I mean I don't think Brian Cranston has anything more to prove after Breaking Bad, but he still wants to go out and keep you know proving right. to himself and proving to everyone the range of him. I mean, technically I don't think e- any three of these guys need to prove anything else. They've all done roles that are mm. from blockbusters to, you know, Oscar nominated roles, but it's the fact that they want to go out and they want to try different things. Well, I'll give you I'll give you and I said this before, I'll give you Steve Carell because you're right, he's he's done so many comedic roles that from a dramatic standpoint, it is films mm. like The Way Way Back and Little Miss Sunshine and Foxcatcher. Right, yeah, but even Brian Cranston's in Little Miss Sunshine too, for like a, a second. He's like, uh. he's like the boss that like they didn't know he was there. but So they actually have a scene together in that film. But you're right. It's like these are these are the films that a lot of people don't know Steve Carell's in or he's being dramatic in them. So Yeah. yeah and, he's, and he's a really good balance in this film. Obviously, he he's the quieter of the three. Mm. Um, but I, I just like to see, um, you know, obviously... I mean, imagine if, if, if Cranston had never done Breaking Bad. And he was just the Malcolm in the Middle guy, and he came and did this film. Yeah, yeah. He got quite lucky with the timing for that, because that was him starting Breaking Bad wasn't long after Malcolm ended. So, so, I mean, who knows? But it, it's a really good film, and I would recommend it. So, uh, back it's, over. It's to you. really good. I was surprised how much I liked it. Um, all right. Well, I'll talk about these next three back to back to back because much like watching Bill Murray for Ghostbusters, following that. We did Kubrick last week. I wanted to watch some more Kubrick films this week. Kubrick. Kubrick. Back to back to back, I watched uh, Doctor Strangelove, Fear and Desire, and a 30-minute documentary called The Seafarers that he did uh, in 1953. So this is interesting. Because we renown Kubrick as this, you know, fantastical film director, and he's done all these wonderful films. And going back to his much earlier works, especially with Fear and Desire and The Seafarers, I was surprised by how not great they are. Yeah, they haven't been met with uh, positive criticism on Letterboxd. Um, I think Letterboxd is a little harsh on Fear and Desire, but we'll get we'll get to that in a second. Okay, yeah. but um, maybe it just took a couple of a uh, couple of uh, duds in quotations mm. um, to get him on the right track. Find a find a, a groove and stick with it. Yeah, well, I think I think the thing I noticed that he's not getting right in Fear and Desire that he got right in a lot of other films is finding the thematic message and translating it for a screen. Because there's a difference between having a message you want to deliver, and you look at some of that 2001, which is 
very high concept about life and meaning and uh, technology and the human race and survival, all of these things. Yeah. And Kubrick found a fantastical way to show those visually with story, with characters, with all these other elements he's put on top of that. And I think Fear and Desire, this is where it sort of lacks. The performances aren't great. The film's barely 60 minutes long. So it is, it's kind of the, the disconnected for me, assuming that I go on to make 10, 15, A Space Odyssey films. level film. <laughs> well, Don't that's the it. thing. It's like it's 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 sort of the mo- it feels more experimental. And you know, if that if that's the only feature I did, that's does it feel like a student film? It does actually. It kind of does. Yeah. Um, a good a good student film, ambitious student film. Well, that's a student film. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we've we've seen plenty of unambitious student films. Yeah. But I mean, I mean this again. This is it's sixty minutes, which is still a valiant effort for someone who's I I'm guessing he's quite young at this point, Kubrick, and. Actually, yeah. Let's see that. Let's see the map. This is no, 1953. You keep going. I'll, 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 cool. I'll find out. So, and it is. This is considered his debut feature. And I've read that he actually hated this one so much he tried to eliminate all prints of it around the world. So suck on that, Kubrick, because I have it on Blu-ray now. <laughs> he was uh 25. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, that sounds spot on. Because I mean, he edited this himself as well, which I thought was quite interesting. But, yeah, I just think a lot of those elements, the story wasn't very engaging because it's about these four sort of guys who've uh, crash-landed in enemy territory. And, of course, we start the film after the crash-landing. We don't see the effects or anything like that. Uh, but it, it sort of goes from there. And it, it all rounds back to fear and desire, the title. It's all about their fear and their desires. But then there's, there's weird things he does that I didn't like where they, they're trekking down this road and the voiceover is all playing, overlapping each other. Like, oh, my God, we're going to die. Like, And it's their internal fears. And I was like, well, that was a bit lazy, the way he did mm. that. Uh, same with like flashing back to these violent moments where they, there's hints of brilliance in it where he can't... He clearly doesn't have the budget for the blood or realistic stabbing motions. Yeah. But, he does these cool cutaways like the hand grabbing the the mush of food that the the soldier was eating and it's like gripping onto the food and it's like okay that's clever and the clever way of hiding the budgetary restraints but they're also still there and they're still distracting and I was bored by the 60th minute which is you know it's not a long film I shouldn't be bored well I mean if if he's at least he has the (laughs) self-awareness it sounds like he does (laughs) I think that's good I think that's good Um, if you have that sort of uh, mm-hmm. even if you have a hatred for your own films, I, I think you're allowed to hate your... I mean, it comes back to, do you think you're allowed to hate your own films? Of course. Yeah. That's all, pick whatever you want. And I think, it's funny, because we land on, I feel like we land on different spectrums where I'm fine with stuff that I'm not proud of still being out there in the wild. And I feel like you, and you've done this in the past with a couple of tiny little films where you've you've destroyed all evidence of some stuff you weren't very proud of. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rather, rather look as clean a slate as possible right <laughs> no because so, I, I have no problem with admitting like putting a uh making a project and looking at it and go i don't like that project i don't want that project to be associated with me right um because i i, I know that that's sort of like creating a false illusion of of what films you've done and the only people mm. that are going to know the films you've completely done are the people that have been around long enough to know you that for that long but right. i i think at the end of the day <laughs> in, the film world can be incredibly cynical and harsh right. and if you don't like that film and you want to put that film under your name out there you've got to feel i feel like a certain amount of pride with mm. that film and you got to believe that that film's good enough for other people's eyes and if you can't even watch it yourself 
why would you want other people to watch it? Even if they they do like it. And I mean, there are films that we've made even in more recent memory mm. that I hate and I can't stand it. Right. But other people watched it and liked it. Well, that was going to be my next point is like, even if you don't like something, and this is sort of how I see it as well, is that there is some intrinsic value to the thing you put out. So sometimes I look at something, I'm like, ah, oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. But it's like, I know that there is some audience out there, small, big, hidden, whatever, that's going to get some intrinsic value from it. Yeah. So I, I think look at it from that perspective. I think for me, it comes back to, uh, and this is going to sound egotistical, but I don't, mm. I don't personally, I don't make films for other people. Right. I make the film for me and then hope people will enjoy what I put out there if I put it out there. Right. But at the end of the day, the film that I make, the thing that I create is for me and then the people that helped create it. Mm. It's it's for the team. It's not for everyone outside of the team. If the team, uh, and I know that sounds kind of no, self-absorbed. I'm, I'm, in a similar, I'm in a similar boat with you there. But it's like if the team goes out there and makes the film and they love the film and no one else outside the bubble loves the film, I don't really care about outside right. the bubble. I like the bubble being happy with it. But it's like if if I make a film with a couple of my friends and I go, I really like this film. I really like what we did in the limited time that we did, mm. which we've talked about. I mean, we have a whole section of our show where we talk about our stuff. And that's fine. You know, if people go out there, they watch it, and they go, oh, I didn't get it. I'll be like, well, I had a positive experience making that film. I think that film is one of my better works. I'm happy to put it out there. Mm. Just because someone else doesn't like it, that's fine. They're allowed to have their opinion. But it doesn't affect the way I th- I perceive right. my own film. There's, there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like it. <laughs> yeah, and there's going to be some people that love it. I mean, it's at the end of the day. But it's at the end, like, I'm not comfortable putting out a film that I feel like it's not right. my best work or it doesn't reflect my type of cinema or my the way I would have expressed that message. Mm. And just because someone else would put out that film who worked on it, like if someone else worked on it and wanted to put it out and publish it or use it, mm. they're allowed to because they have just as much claim to the work as me. But yeah, I mean, that's up to them. It just means mm. I wouldn't want my name associated with it. I mean, I was right there with you. In terms of the bubble, like I completely get that because you're right. I, I also make films for me. Yeah. Like I don't necessarily, some, maybe sometimes rare section, but you're right. I mostly make films for me. So I don't think it's an egotistical I thing mean, at all. I th- when and, you're when you're a painter, you're not painting for someone else. You're not painting for the approval of the audience. You're painting for you. Right. When you're making a film, you shouldn't be looking for the the potential thousands of viewers or the potential tens of viewers or hundreds of viewers. You should be doing it because you like doing it. You love doing it, mm. and you want to say something with with the camera that you're given. Or well, yeah, and sp- and and to further your point with the bubble, like I mean, I remember saying when we had the disconnected premiere, I didn't care what anyone else thought, but my cast. I was like, I hope my cast like it. Yeah, that's all I cared about. Because they're frankly. the ones, who, yeah, because <laughs> they put the time into the work. Exactly. I wanted them to be proud of their work as much as I was proud of what I did. So yeah, I completely get that. But the film where you're painting, what what if you're painting something for someone else? That's I would think that's a commission, which leads us right into. Uh, this next film that Kubrick did that I thought is probably his worst work. Jake, you're getting better at segues. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so The Seafarers, which was, again, the 30-minute documentary, it was on the disc for Fear and Desire. That's how I was able to watch it. It's probably on YouTube as well. Um, this was most certainly not a Kubrick film. And people say, oh, but it's Kubrick's first coloured film in 1953, same year as Fear and Desire. 
what other people have seen and I completely saw was that this is a film about the Seafarers International Union produced by and funded by the same international union. So it's a corporate documentary. It's basically a corporate newsreel. There is no authoritarian voice from Kubrick. I feel dirty calling this a documentary. It, it's That's exactly what it is. And apparently he used the money he made from this to fund Fear and Desire, which yeah. I actually love. I'm like, that's clever. But um, yeah, no, this was uh, ugh, just so factory produced and kind of... It sucked. <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, at the end of the day, it seems like there's at least the ulterior motive there. Like, mm. the fact that he used the money from that to fund the feature, it yep. sort of kind of... I think it forgives the action because at the end of the day, it's essentially doing a a feature-length corporate video, right? Well, you said yeah. it's what? It's 29 minutes? It's, yeah, about so 29 it's a, minutes. So it's, a cor- it's basically it's a short corporate video. Well, that's the thing. Extended I think, corporate video, really. I think I was just more offended by the fact that Letterboxd and other people consider this a film or a documentary, period. Because it's not. It's mm. absolutely not. So let's not count this as his filmography, please. Yeah, let's not, that's fair. Let's not do that. Um, but You could always petition to take it off. <laughs> sure, I'm sure Kubrick will rise from the dead and also join that petition. Yeah. So, but um, I mean, I because if it's literally used to fund another film and it's essentially a corporate video that's just a very long corporate video, then really he's just being like most other indie filmmakers using other sources to source, you know, the film he wanted to make. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's like you know, years from now we're both dead, Zeke, and we we find in our letterboxes that someone's put. The, the backlot factual video and the Dave Holden factual it's like those aren't films that we made all right so yeah I'm more angry with that aspect <laughs> than Kubrick doing it like. exactly no that's, that's fair <laughs> um honestly yeah I will have to give more Kubrick attention I did address it last week on the show that I need to put more effort into Kubrick films but I mean just just watch a clockwork orange you're pretty good from that point on I feel like yeah yeah, I, I mean, I would actually like to watch Fear and Desire simply because it's sort of like... It's I'm, homework in a way. Yeah, exactly. You gotta, but I, I, I do feel like um, the director we're going to talk about later on, I think I need to put more effort into watching his films because he has a lot uh. more films and a lot more good films too. Mm. Um, so the other film I watched this week, other than the film of the week, was a John Carpenter film, which... Honestly, I oh, think yeah. I, I think I might love John Carpenter. <laughs> like, I did see this in your letterbox, just, yeah. Um, yeah, so I watched a um, 1986 film, Big Trouble in Little China, mm. which uh, I think, from what I hear, I mean, he did a couple of, following, obviously, John Carpenter's The Man Behind Halloween uh, and The Thing, mm. uh, probably his two most well-known films, but he did do a run of... Uh, action sort of films that were kind of like okay. kooky action films. He did Cookie. Escape from L.A., uh, They Live, and and this film, Big Trouble in Little China, and Kurt Russell's in Escape from L.A. too. Um, first off, I love Kurt Russell. I straight <laughs> he do. Yeah. He's just so cool. He's just cool. Um, also, I think uh, John Carpenter is a lot of fun as a director. I think he the fact that he goes from a horror film... A couple of really good horror films to these just these like uh, kooky action films about like sort of like Chinese mysticism and kung fu. I made a joke that I was like, if Jack was a director, he's John Carpenter, and I actually think that's the best comparison to yeah. Jack's film style. Um, 
because if he could make films with budget, he'd make films like this. I know he would, <laughs> and he agreed. So, um, I really enjoyed it. It was a it was fun. It's sort of like a more violent Power Rangers episode at times, so it's oh, kind of funny. Like that. Is there an Ivan Ooze equivalent? Everyone's favorite character in Power uh, Rangers. I'm not a very akin to Power Rangers oh. lore. Um, Everyone knows Ivan Ooze. It's an in-joke but, with me and my brother. <laughs> um, I do have Escape from LA too, and they live sitting on my shelf ready to watch. So I'm going to see oh, if sweet. I can try and squeeze them in. Um, but I did have a lot of fun with this film. Uh, it's basically centered around uh, Kurt Russell's a truck driver, and he rocks up in in uh, in Chinatown, San Francisco, mm. and basically gets caught into this whole night of adventure. And it's 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 an, it's insane, like it's insane, but it's very self-aware how insane it is. Okay, cool. It's it's just fun, and Carpenter has a real uh, attachment to practical effects uh, in his eighties uh, yeah, films, like Hollywood, uh, Hollywood, Hollywood. Well, you, and and the you. thing, and it, they just look so much more. F- they're either comically funny. And it's like the '80s had the best practical effects. I'm yeah. sorry, they just did. I mean, like, that's where got, it peaked, surely. I think it did actually peak back then. Like, I straight up think the '80s peaked in, on practical effects. Like, the, there's some really cool uh, things in this where it's like they would just do them in CGI now, but because they're done practically back then, they just they either look funnier. Mm. But like, still kind of like they not hold re- up in a way. Yeah, they do. Like, the, yeah. I watched this film on DVD, not even on Blu-ray. And I just enjoyed it. Like, it's just a really easy ninety-nine minutes to watch, you know. Mm. So, I'm really looking forward to watching Escape from LA and like, they live yeah. now. So, yeah, uh, I think because like you got Jurassic Park and uh, Terminator Two in the '90s, and those very much are like, here's what CGI can do. So, I think '80s that makes sense. That's where like the practical stuff really peaked. I feel like. Yeah. Maybe Sorry, Escape from New York, not LA. Oh, okay. There is an Escape from L.A. Though. Oh, yeah, there is. I've got Escape from L.A., but I also need to watch Escape from New York. Oh, there's so many escapings we must do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to escape from reality. Escape from L.A. The is the sequel. Ah, oh, I see. So oh. they just moved. <laughs> I'll have to watch both. But, uh... That's yeah. cool. It's exciting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think he's got a, a collection of kind of fun films. So, I'm, uh... That's a good filmography. That, that and, like, Sam Raimi. You're right. That's Jack right there to a T. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. But that, uh, that's all I watched this week. Right. I'll just quickly wrap up with Dr. Strangelove. It's the last thing I saw from Kubrick. Good thing and... to finish off. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, he's uh, back to his gold standard here. I was... See, you said it last week in, pa- in passing that this film was a satire. And I, only with my limited, more later years of Kubrick knowledge, I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sure it isn't. And then I watched it. I was like, oh shit, it's a straight up black comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Did not know that. So I'll give you credit there. But um, no, this film was awesome. Yeah, the war room stuff was just so funny. With I think it's George C. Scott, who's the, like, the general character. Mm-hmm. He's just whipping out bangers. and <laughs> it's The <laughs> ending The ending's pretty funny, where they're all just sitting around like preparing for it all. Oh yeah. It, did it, see, I don't know if I just interpreted this incorrectly, but when that... Um, it was the Russian guy. It turns out he actually does have a little spy camera on him. Mm-hmm. My interpretation was, oh, that were they just lying to the Americans the whole time? They don't have a bomb that does this. Well, or was they, that they all, all the they... explosions? Is that what that yeah, was? Yeah, every it's the end okay, of the world. Okay, so okay, I interpreted that incorrectly. Sorry, Kubrick. No, but um, you know, I I just love those elements of like the the countries sort of upping each other in terms of who's got the biggest dick 
energy <laughs> with the bombs and it's essential. I mean, yeah. and it's funny because of how I watched this film either last year or the year before, mm. and it it it's timeless. Like the fact yeah. that that this film came out in nineteen sixty four. And essentially, maybe the countries have changed. Obviously, this was more a social commentary on the Cold War at the time. Mm. And you probably could exchange maybe... I mean, Russia would still be there. You probably would exchange Germany for, like, China now. But (laughs) essentially, it's all the same sort of big dick energy. America's still throwing their weight around, thinking that they're untouchable. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a very... A film that transcends time yeah and you can still be vastly entertained at sort of any point of watching it and i, mean, I really like I, 2001 in a lot of ways for sure oh yeah yeah recurring theme with kubrick films mm. and his music choices oh so good perfect 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 music choices every time every time so uh yeah. i guess what this would be the time where we move into our career section yeah. i don't have anything to add on my end um yeah i'm gonna hold off as well i did start i told you off the show i did stumble into something but there's a good chance that it will actually be available within the next week so i'm gonna hold off because maybe next week i can actually talk about it in a fuller sense Wowzers. where the audience can actually go and see this i don't know Wowzers. This is, this is words being thrown around schedules being thrown around it's like i don't know what's going on so uh, i'm gonna hold off this week as well i'm still waiting on screen west i've got i've heard nothing zeke that's they, okay they told me nothing we shall see Girl. we shall no, see good. though we shall see all right well in that case it's time to move into our film of the week. Ooh, but Jake, exciting. we're moving into the 1950s, but what are we watching? This week on the show, we're watching 12 Angry Men. On the point of that night, a man's life is at stake. I'm just saying it's possible. And I say it's not possible. A dissenting juror in a murder trial slowly manages to convince the others that the case is not as obvious and clear as it seemed in court. Mm. This film was directed by Sidney LeMay. That guy. He's a pretty uh, important guy in terms of film (laughs) history. Um, Obviously, this film won quite easily over the searches. Uh, Yeah, no, I remember that was a big one. um, And later in the show, we will reveal what... We're watching for the 1940s, in which there was also a decisive winner. I wonder who. Shockingly, uh, yeah. Shockingly. Um, so this film, as I said before we started this segment, is on sure. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I've ever break. seen 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, really? Like, I might have seen like episodes of shows like at 100. Yeah. But... I mean, obviously, that doesn't mean that everyone thinks this is perfect, but they, it means 100% of positive reviews. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess for Rotten Tomatoes is... They're like that, aren't they? I wonder what the um, Metacritic score is. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, like, this film is so renowned. I know, like, Let- on Letterboxd, it's, like, the seventh highest... 4.5. Narrative Out of film. five. Average score oh, wow. on Letterboxd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in which we both gave it four and a half. Oh, there five, you go. Well, so. on the money. <laughs> so, there we go. Um, yeah, so I've only seen one other Sidney Lumet film, which I talked about yonkies ago on this show mm. back in year one pretty early one, yeah, one on in this show called Death Trap, which was his 1981 film with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeves, uh, following um, kind of a similar formula to this film in the sense that both films do feel like stage plays. Um, it's a little bit more of a meta-narrative in 
in a death trap because, uh, well, one of the characters is a stage writer, uh, oh, and meta. one is uh, the other character is a aspiring stage writer. So definitely uh, way more meta. Uh, it does make for a fun kind of subversion of genre, um, almost like uh, the Ryan Johnson before Ryan Johnson, um, <laughs> but. This film definitely feels more traditionally a stage play. Um, 12 Angry Men. Would you agree, Jake? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure, I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that there's a 1954, or a script written in 1954 that was meant to be a stage play of this story, and I think it was then developed into a screen adaption, I think before the stage even existed. And of course, like if you Google 12 Angry Men, there are videos of stage performances of this. I'm like, why is it in colour? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's not them. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't, it, I'm, I'm now uh, 100% tricky. doesn't surprise me that anyone ever would turn this into, uh, like, this makes stage sense play, as a stage. Yeah. I mean, it literally is predominantly in one room with the exception of a bathroom scene. And I think Do one... we see the bathroom? Yeah, yeah. Ah, um, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. There's a small exchange between Jura 7 and 8. Um, oh, obviously, names, this yeah. is going to be very <laughs> difficult to keep track of who's doing what. The important people to note in this story are Jura 3, who is essentially the key antagonist of this film. He is the one that is outright declaring it is a murder from start to finish. Mm, um, and Jura 8 is Henry Fonda, who's probably the, he's easily the biggest name in the film. He's actually the only one that's solely billed on most of the posters. Right. Um... And, yeah, he's Jura 8, so he's definitely the outright protagonist of the film. But obviously they wanted to, like, they definitely don't want you to think that either character's good or bad. It's very much just mm. 12 men essentially discussing a murder case. One of them doesn't believe that the kid is a murderer, and then the movie is a process of elimination over the course of the jury. So to knock him out, yeah, well, I think the reason they mostly don't have names is for that really powerful ending which i'll talk about a bit later well the, but, i i think in juries you're not allowed to give away you're not allowed to say your name ah, that makes to the sense. other jurors because it's even better i like that because it's sort of uh at the end of the day a jury is meant to almost be a, rem a removal of humanity ironically it's meant to be a complete mm. objective truth and by, by having people's names you create empathy and sympathy with each other just it's human nature well i guess it just plays into the whole wider theme here, which is so just something I just love synonymously, and and I just checked my letterbox now. I did, I first watched this one on the twenty first of March, which that's bad timing for our podcast because that as soon as we went into pre records, so mm. either I talked a little bit about this film on episode sixty six, Hell or High Water, or I haven't talked about it at all, which is even oop, my computer's like I don't want to. Oh, there we go, perfect. We did not lose anything, Zeke. Good, good stuff. Good but stuff. But, um, that's probably a good thing if you haven't talked about it, because then you get it all out here. I can get it all out here. I can do it. So, yeah, I mean, just th just that thematic element of justice and trying to serve justice. And it goes into what you were saying. It sounds like you got a bit more knowledge on, like, a jury system. I've never been in a jury before, which is surprising. I have also never been in a jury okay. system before. I got, I got, how many, I got, like, what, four or five months on you? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that makes all the difference. Five months. Okay. But, oh, yeah, true, but... Here's the thing is, it's such a universal concept because even though neither of us have really been in that situation before, we've had to pass judgment onto this person. The decision we make, and it's so beautifully repeated in the very beginning of the film where it's like, your decision matters. Think about this decision. They're told that to their face and then mm -hmm. the rest of the film is in this one room. 
and I love that it just prevails and the the this one guy who's able to convince the rest and for this you're right a process of elimination almost is like you're counting on your hand the entire time or both hands how do you have three hands Luke to count twelve there you go okay I have two no oh, well we're both screwed but no maybe, but maybe I, I, I get what notepad. you mean it's it's the slow uh swaying of the truth mm. and it and it's funny how they start with the first vote and it's 11 to 1 and it's very much that uh they they start to address some of the things pack mentality you know how certain people are just looking for the easy way out they're not even voting with thought they're voting with what's going on in their yeah. outside they want, they want to make the, ba- the baseball game yeah dura <laughs> seven wants to make the baseball games uh, uh there are i think two people that just vote with the group because they don't want to be the guy who doesn't mm, vote with the group. Exactly. Um, and it's what's easier. And, and it sort of addresses that thing where it's, um, at the end of the day, all of these men go really into the room, all but one of them, uh, fully ready to pass judgment without consequence. Mm. And the reality is this film is trying to recognize there is consequence to action. I mean, a life is literally in the balance. Mm. And... At first, everyone's willing to just vote once and then be out in five minutes because it seems, on the surface, a clear, cut, and dry issue. Um, and I think this is a really... Obviously, given the current events of the world, this is sort of a, ironically, well-timed film for us to talk about, sort mm. of how who passes judgment and what gives someone the right to pass judgment right. against individuals and, and how we... Uh, have more power in certain situations and with that power becomes comes that responsibility it comes back to uncle ben what he said <laughs> uncle um, ben uh, the og pen parker is in this film <laughs> yeah but it's true i mean like yeah. it, they constantly address the issue that um you don't just get the you, when you get this right you get this power there is there are inted- uh, incredibly dire consequences to whatever decision is made there mm. there affects the entire world around it um they start off when they enter the room a couple of the jurors are talking about oh it's pretty cool that we got a murder case rather than some petty <laughs> petty crime because yeah. you know at least it was more interesting and that's perceiving it more on a selfish level that mm. oh they got something their enjoyment yeah at least they got some entertainment out of this like they've already made their decision they haven't even thought about the ramifications of their decision they were just happy they were entertained for a few days. And I, I, I find that sort of interesting how one by one they start to kind of question like their responsibility. And it mm. starts with, you know, it starts with this, this character, this Henry Fonda character addressing some simple things like the knife. And it's sort of funny how each character at some point, each juror at some point plays a hand in helping Henry Fonda, who at first just didn't believe it because he didn't believe the evidence, but it didn't mean he had all the answers. In fact, everyone in the room at some point contributes to uh, why this boy might be innocent. Right. The, 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 there's always some sort of self-realization that when someone sways and it's like, oh, now we swayed this person onto the side of innocence, it there's a part of them that's figured it out too. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's things like uh, when they talk about memory mm. or... Or what happens if the lady across the roads who wears glasses isn't the wearing glasses, her glasses? Yeah. Or 
or how one of the jurors knows what it's like to be in a knife fight so he knows how to hold a switchblade mm. and he and as he demonstrates he's like oh well there's no way he could have stabbed him with the switchblade and that's something as well I love so much is that each thing that you know when you talk about the glasses or how to hold a switchblade or um, probably my favorite one is when they're doing the steps how fast would he walk to a certain yeah. spot uh, given like maybe disabled leg or whatever I love that it's not like the most clear cut. It's just it's the everyday things that any normal person would understand. If you wore glasses, you would understand these insecure little things about wearing glasses, about how it folds your eyes and the shape of your head. Like these little things. I love that it's that that's what it is. It's not like it's, some random ex machina. Oh, this knife fell from the sky. I mean, at, at the end of the day, that. if anything, it's just a, a microcosm look at how. Technically, a mm. democratic jury system works. They recognize the fact that, you know, both sides of the lawyers are doing their job. They're not trying to actually tell you the truth. They're just trying to tell you the truth that helps their case. Exactly. They're and, arguing for a and, point. And this is this is something that is addressed, that at first they go, well, you know, the prosecutor said this, 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 and that must be true. And he's like, mm. that might be true from a certain point of view. But it's, you know... A different Ben we're quoting there. Yes. <laughs> it's true. I'm glad you picked up my Zartless reference. Oh, I got you. you there. Don't worry. Um, but it's true. And it's like, what makes this um, uh, film so so cool is is the fact that it's 12 normal individuals. And Be it, angry normal individuals. <laughs> yeah, but I actually think, with the exception of Jura 3, not many of them get that angry. That's, that's they get true. frustrated. Yeah, they get... yeah. But it wouldn't go off quite as well if it was called 12 Frustrated Men. <laughs> <laughs> 12 Sexually Frustrated Men. Um, and I I, I, oh, I think there are a lot of like uh, interesting sort of um, bits and bobs in this film. I think uh, this film, although is a perfect, like it's a really good film, it would be interesting to see. I'm surprised that although it says apparently there is a 1997 mm. Uh, version of this film, you said it might not be in English. I'm pretty sure it's not an English adaption because I me- I remember thinking this. I'm like, I'm shocked this hasn't been remade, and I believe it has. So let's quickly look. Yeah, so 1997. Let's see what it comes this is up. This miniseries. With. Oh really? Yeah. My computer's got a really low threshold. Yeah, now. it's a television <laughs> miniseries, which is kind of odd. The remake from 1950s class. Made for series. made for television drama film. Oh, from um bloody William. Freakin', which is the uh, Exorcist dude. Oh, okay. Interesting. I'm surprised this hasn't been remade into, like, a more contemporary-based script idea. Yeah. My mum joked that it'll be 12 Angry Women next time. That'll be the next film. I I mean... In modern time. 12 Angry People would probably be the... (laughs) The, the honor, I reckon it'd be a good we, mix. We could go deeper with this joke. Let's... Uh, we could. But <laughs> honestly, at its core, the whole point of it is to show what ha- like the weight of a jury. Mm. And the funny thing is there are many films out there. I mean, you talked about off-air, off Jake, uh, how To Kill a Mockingbird came out. On the same not, decade. In the same decade, not six years later, I think. Uh, maybe it might have been before. No, not two, two years later, I think. Let me check. Oh, 1959. I think so. That could, yeah, that could be right. I was, I was, you know, oh, 62. So five. Years oh, okay, later. yeah, a few years later. Okay, so I was wrong. It was actually the decade after. I was a little disappointed with *The Killer Mockingbird*, the film. Okay, specifically, but, but it's sort of else. talking about how often in films, I do think, um, and even prior to this film, there are 
there are many uh, different uh, films that are set in courtrooms, mm. um, how often they put an emphasis on what the power of the lawyer can do mm. rather than the power of the jury. Yeah, there are and no the, lawyers in this film, like yeah, that we see. And often the jury in film and television, even up till today, serves as nothing more than uh, the people that get convinced by the lawyer rather than the other way around. Yeah, exactly. They're sort of the object in the scene. Really. Yeah, they're, 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 they're the technically, quote, the power, but really they, they're framed like... I mean, you look at some other films like, um, you know, A Few Good Men and stuff like that. It's very much about... The, the the lawyers and, convincing yeah. the jury rather than or even primal fear you know the the jury is nothing more than the people that are on look we're basically the jury mm. like is it they sad almost that my go to example is B movie uh, that is a little sad I'm actually um but it still it still applies but technically often <laughs> in film the jury serves as the audience yeah so when we believe what the lawyers are saying and the the jury often acts in the same way we would act in that scene yeah. so. In this film, we don't have power over anything. We are observers to the jury. Well, we're learning the information as they repeat it. Yeah. So we're going in feeling... And I remember when I first watched this film, I was I was expecting that to be the case, where we walk in with so little information about the case. And, of course, we're meant to learn from the beginning. Oh, okay, well, they're all very flippant. And, yep, this is very much he's guilty. And let's, let's call it a day. And I was surprised that we started getting little nibbles of the actual case and i don't know why that was a surprise to me but it was a cool i, I guess we're just used to films well, it's sort of like a reverse murder isn't it it almost feels yeah. like you get the murder the murder's already happened and done and it's not necessarily a who done it because we know potentially who has done it it's not a, yeah. we never they well, never, we never s- find out who actually well we don't actually know if he didn't do it this is the at the end that's of that's true but i i i'm convinced personally but i think that's <laughs> the thing like at the, the end of the day rather than uh often how the jury is framed as the audience mm. we're now more a fly on the wall watching the jury we don't have we're sort of observing what they do and yeah our opinion is shaping with as the jury is slowly being turned mm. um and i think that's just really effective um I think confining it to the one room, not doing things like flashbacks. This is very much a grounded, mm, real this, time sort of presentation. It's what makes the film ten times more effective, mm. because, like you said, the information is being revealed to us as they are expressing it and talking about it and bringing evidence in, and talking about the logistics of the location just from the accounts that they've been given. Yeah. Which is fascinating. You can see in a in a modern film that it would they would totally be tempted to you know flashback. So when they're doing stuff like <clears throat> excuse me, looking through the window, it's almost like they would do little quick flashes of eyes looking through a window and stuff like. Yeah, it, it would be all. These but the fact is, none of these people mean. were at the crime. They've only heard exactly, of the crime yeah. from you know what's been given to them, and that's what makes it more tense because the information that they have essentially gathered could potentially be wrong, mm. but. The, the fact is that they're allowing themselves to take a closer look. Because originally, at first, 11 of the 12, at least, are willing to accept just what the prosecutors fed them, what mm. the defense and uh, has fed them. And they're willing to be like, oh, well, that's just the truth. Yeah, the face value of what they've been told. Yeah. yeah. He's a criminal. He's got a, cri- he's got a criminal record. Makes sense. And what's so interesting is you bringing up the point Almost kind of jokingly, but you're not wrong. As in, we still don't know. Maybe he is. He was guilty the whole time. Hmm. We don't know that. And the fact that we don't 
cut away outside of the room. The fact that we don't see any other perspectives in the argument we is don't what even, makes us not know. We don't even that. see them deliver the verdict. No. We we know that they've reached a verdict, but we never see it. We just, after the events of that scene happening, we just cut to uh, Jura 8 and 9 finally revealing wouldn't, their names Wouldn't it be great if they just, like, forgot? Like, they were so kept up in, like, all the angst in there, and they just all left, and they were like, oh, shit, we forgot! You know, <laughs> I really love this film, and I, I do think this is definitely one of the all-time greats, and this was mm. a great choice for the 50s. But one of the funniest things, and I'm not going to lie... Um, and I really like how they address this. And it actually, I think it's played as a joke in the film, but because they had to do these really long takes and we haven't even mm. talked about the cinematography nah, and how the floating camera works in Lume films and it works really well. But the reason they're all sweating so much is you know that the lights, they're not LEDs, they're right. halogen bulbs. Yeah, yeah. So the stage that they would have been on to film this film would have been a sauna. It right, would have been all horribly the crew, hot. The heats, the small rooms, yeah. Um, and they've talked about it on things like the shows, the show like in Mash, when they had to like apparently on one of the episodes of Mash. And this is in the sixties or the fifties, mm. but um, they had to dress up in Eskimo outfits, and about four or five of them passed out from heat stroke Damn. because of how hot the lights were, how hot California gets, mm. and just like all of that. <laughs> so when they're like, when like. Uh, when the pro- when the dude from the evidence locker is coming in, and of course, because he, he hasn't been under the lights for all this yeah, time, yeah. and Jura One, who acts as sort of the the head of the bo- like the head of the room, he's the communication source between the yeah. rooms, yeah, and he's just developing these obnoxious sweaty arms under his. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh because it's like, unfortunately, that's just a product of the time. I'm never gonna like blame them for that. That's just because they literally just had those ridiculously hot bulbs. And we've been under those lights before. We know, lights yeah, like that. And after about 10 minutes, I'm sweating. So to be under them for probably <laughs> a day, like they were. 12 hours a day for how long they shot. Yeah. It was just funny. And they made a joke a with Jura 7, who's the guy in the Trilby hat. Yeah. And the fan being turned off in the room. Oh, yeah, yeah, Because yeah. of the power being cut. And he's like, oh, it's so hot in this room. That's funny. <laughs> Even though it's rain, it was raining outside at yeah, a point. Yeah. And it's like... I just found that really funny because it's clearly like they were like they probably like the set decorators like they're going to be under these lights for 12 hours with these big three four minute takes oh my god we're gonna have to put a fan in the room (laughs) oh jesus no i think i mean you never know it's always that thing of oh is this bit of fourth wall break yeah exactly it was this done because of this practical production reason i mean to be fair by the fact that they're just or tense from the situation. I buy that. Yeah. I mean, like, there's obviously, like, there... But it's kind of funny when, like, they're delivering their one-liners and they're having to put the handkerchief... You can feel like some of it, some of it had to be ad-libbed with them putting the handkerchiefs <laughs> at their heads because they were clearly just under some really hot bulbs. It adds to the tensity, tenseness of the situation. Yeah, so it exactly. actually works in the favour. But I did... Like, that's definitely more a product of the environment they would have had to have been in to shoot the film. Yeah. And it, and it would have been, and it would have been like, if this was on a stage play, it'd be the same thing back then too. Yeah. I mean, it definitely wouldn't have been as hot on a stage play as, as doing the film for sure. But you're right. It would have been intense to, to produce that, which I don't think a lot of people think about it, especially because there's so much arguing. There's so much dialogue. Like yeah. this is a talky, talky film. This, this is a mumblecore film. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The OG um, mumblecore. The OG mumblecore. Well, that, that I mean, that to, to that point, like the dialogue in this film is quite. It has to be really good, and it has to. 
Yeah, Mumble, Mumblecore is definitely more like well, it feels it, like the dialogue's it, kind of pointless. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's working around to the point rather exactly. than exactly. It's the the um, illusion of pointlessness. Yes, the the illusion of real quote unquote dialogue where mm. a lot of you know variations and people just go off on tangents and yeah. this feels people like a t- controlled dialogue. Scheme. Yeah, this feels like a stage play. Yeah, where it feels like every line needs to be exactly spaced the way it is. You mm. know. Well, people... you, have to, you have to be convinced that they're convincing each other of all these facts. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's essentially, it's an hour and a half debate. <laughs> <laughs> Which I I'm really... sure we've been on before. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Of course. Um, and I, I, I do like how um, it's not necessarily uh, Henry Fonda is not the outright protagonist. He's just the first one to disagree. And then he mm. starts the train of thought that leads to everyone else coming around. Cause I don't think he drives every point home. He's not the guy who convinces everyone. In fact, it's quite, no. he gets quite a lot of assistance from people that he slowly. Well, it's, to it's his... the old fellow. I believe his name's Mick Craddle mm. or Cardle. Uh, he introduces himself at the end. I think he's the one that is sort of the second guy to start turning around. I just spat on my, yeah. on my pop filter. <laughs> That's the whole point of a pop filter. Yeah, I know. So the audience doesn't get my, blah, 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 my spit. Yeah, exactly. But I like I like that he's they they find the right order of characters in terms of who's nice and who does this and who does that. So it's like okay, I can understand that this nice old man is the one to be like. Well, you know what? Let's give this Sonny over here a like a chance to speak up. So I, yeah. I like that they put in the effort so each character sort of naturally starts engulfing everyone. Like oh, maybe he is innocent because of this evidence because of this evidence. And it, and I I do think the film taps on a few things how. Uh, people were bringing in uh, outer contexts that aren't even related to the case, mm. to the reason why they feel the way they do about the case at hand. And that's sort of another thing that they acknowledge affects jurors, you know? It, it, like, the fact that Juror 3 has a son of a similar age yeah. and has an equally frustrating relationship with his own son. And you can feel like the reason he stuck to his guns as long as he did is because there's a lot of reflection in his own relationship with his son and how frustrating he gets with his own son. Because yeah. he constantly refers to his son as sort of a, a, a equally frustrating failure. Well, he has this obsession of like, oh, well, you know, the youth, they're all like that. They're all like that. Yeah. And and it goes back to, you know, when, when you become part of a juror, you, you assume, it's like, oh, well, they weed out the people, you know, do you have any like racial implications or this or that, you know, they try and weed them out, mm. but you're right. There's so many underlying things that you might not be able to pick out. Well, like, well, you can't tell that this person has a son with this issue and that issue. Like yeah. it's impossible to fully do that. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what they try and mm. acknowledge is at the end of the day, you can control to a certain extent, but you can't control everything. You can't yeah. get rid of people's own personal lives and subtexts, you know, their own, uh, religious beliefs or their own sort of um and i'm surprised this film doesn't nearly touch on religion as a side of uh, as an argument it sort of keeps to a very grounded fact i'm surprised this film didn't go nearly as many ways that i feel like if it it was ever to be a modern contemporary remake of this film they probably would go that way and whether that would make the film less powerful because it's very much just a discussion that has Mm -hmm. no extra uh, factors involved. Yeah, I you know what I understand that. I think it would definitely be a weaker film if they try to 
have this extra alignment. Well, of, minority oh, incorporation is the way I would right, say it. Right, right. Like, well, in particular to religion, because say, for example, it was like a religious belief that caused one of the characters to be like, no, 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 this is my standpoint here. I think for a film in the 1950s, I think they probably wanted to stray away from that. They probably didn't want to put a stample on, oh, well, if you're part of this religion, then this makes yeah. you bad. I think they wanted to avoid those implications. Interesting. It would be an interesting way to go, but... Mm. Um, yeah, like uh, I mean, do you do you have anything you'd like to um, touch on? I think we'll touch on the cinematography. Yeah, before, definitely know. one of the big standouts. Um, well, was the question I posed to you in the car on the way here was, how do you make a film like this interesting when there's so little in the in the variety of locations or anything like that? It's so talky. How do you make this visually interesting? And you talk about the floating camera effect, which I think is used very well. It's it's definitely a out of the, the couple of films I've seen from him, mm. it's a recurring theme. Um, it's sort of like uh, an ethereal presence, and it really emphasizes the fly-on-wall uh, sort of persona that mm. we take as the audience because, you know, the way the, it moves through the room is it's literally almost like a fly moving through a room of people talking. Um, that was me. Minus the annoying... Uh, noise um but yeah no it definitely like the way that they float from character to character interaction to interaction uh it helps and i mean there are cutaways but mm. there are full sequences that go for three four minutes of just the camera moving through yeah taking those and takes. i haven't seen many many film directors do it nearly as well in terms of dialogue exchange mm. i think paul thomas anderson does it really well uh but other than, especially in things like Boogie Nights, he does it really well. Um, but it definitely would depend on... Uh, I haven't seen many do it as well as him. He just... He has the perfect sort of pacing and movement and kind of revolutionary given the how clunky the camera technology would have been at the time in order yeah, to get that sort of effect. That's Because we talk about Steadicam with Kubrick in The Shining, which was over 20 years after this. Yeah. So in terms of having that steady cam, so and it, it's a bit more floaty, but this is kind of what we're looking at here with this camera technique or the, the way it moves. You're right, it is rare to see it so smooth, and I had that same thought as well when I first watched mm. this film. Was oh wow, it actually is quite a clean transition or a clean move. Yeah, yeah. So I, and it just establishes everything, especially in those early scenes. Like it's just establishing well, sort of the geography of the room. Geography of the room. Um sort of relationship dynamics it gives a quick introduction mm. to each character and maybe like one trait because often a lot of them only have one kind of definable trait which is mm. not necessarily a bad thing because we're not trying to get character dimension here we're trying to get an essence of you know an overview of each character because you know like the fact that up until literally the last scene, we mm. don't know any of their names. We're not supposed to know too much about their characters. Yeah. We're only supposed to know what they bring to the case and to literally the table. Mm. Because, <laughs> you know... Like a knife. Well, it's like... Yeah. And by doing that, we're allowed to focus, like drive our focus, not on the characters themselves, but the case and what mm. each of them brings to the case. You know, Absolutely. the fact that uh, they all have relatively simple uh costume differentiation not a big differentiation but you know big enough whether it's a slight age difference or one character wearing clearly defined glasses that he's yep. constantly playing with or a character with a trilby hat who's mm. 
apart from talking about the case, constantly talks about wanting to go to a baseball game. That's his <laughs> defining trait, you know? Um, no, you're spot on with, like, you don't want them to be so characterized that it's distracting because it's all a vehicle to serving justice. And I'm guessing there's only 12 characters in this film because I'm guessing that's just how many jurors there would be. It's actually 13, including uh, the guy who brings the evidence. Just saying. Oh, well, there you go. Well, that guy wasn't arguing with everyone, yeah, was he? Are we just going no, to voice mean. now? <laughs> um, no, Angry yeah. Like, obviously, that's the thing. You have 12 jurors, I think, in at least the US justice system. I'm not sure about the Australian justice system. Mm, but two. the reality uh, is, you have a collection <laughs> of people that decide a verdict. And it does yeah. have to be a unanimous verdict, no matter what. Otherwise, the jury's hung, you have a mistrial, and you restart. Yeah. And I just love that the film follows those rules to a T. And it's like, yep, yeah, this is it. And we're going to go the extra mile so that all 12 are convinced and all 12 say yes. Yeah, and it gets to the point where they get to the halfway mark and they're at six and six and they just go, well, we're not going to change this, so uh, <laughs> why don't we just go for a hung jury? And then half the people go, yeah, it's fine. But then it's six not... Six and six again. <laughs> but it's interesting, exactly. just interesting even back then, and I do think that this attitude is one of those that ones that transcend time and would definitely reflect an attitude of today is when facing a big decision, people often go for the easiest route mm. and the quickest route too. Even though it's there? their duty as civil, like as civilians, as as uh, people of the of the state and mm. the country, this is their duty to decide. They've been called in to do this duty. Yeah, they still want the a lot of them still want the easiest way out, the quickest way out, because they'd rather go back to their own lives rather than. Not really accepting the weight of what they, you know, their duty involves. Well, it's yeah, to them it's an inconvenience. Yeah, and that's what I think is so powerful because that perfectly ties into the ending. If you want to talk a bit about the ending, this film is well over what sixty years old now. So I think you so. can touch in on it, buddy. <laughs> the ending. Um, no, you're right. We're at the end when everyone leaves, or when they start walking. We get we get the two that introduce to each other or have that conversation. But it's just that final shot of them all making their own way out, and it's like they're never going to see each other again. No. Even even the fact that like they can't exchange mobile phone numbers, you know, they don't have mobile phones. They? Well, it it, it, it even comes back to the verbal exchange between Henry Fonda and um, uh, like Jura. Well, I'm just going to call them Jura Eight and Nine. Mm. Um, and they actually say each other's names because I can't remember the names off the top of the head. Uh, their names are Davis and McCraddle. Okay, see, but that's how unimportant their names is because after they say each other's names, Davis literally just goes, okay, see ya, and then leaves. Mm. And then they both walk Actually, down the stairs. That's one first name and one surname. So they don't even have each other's full names, I don't think. No. So yeah. they even, like, after they've done their due diligence mm. and, you know, Duranine's come over and politely said his name, they, they, he, like, Davis himself, has no interest in going, oh, do you want to go have a drink? He does Like, he very much is like... They just move on. Yeah. We move on. We keep moving. Like, it, it's actually almost an awkward interaction. <laughs> it's like like their their bubble. They were in that little bubble in this, this little world, and after their task is done, that's it. They're not friends. Yeah, they're they back to being men on their own journeys, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, they have their own lives, respectively. Um, they did what they think was the right thing to do mm. whether it was the right thing to do we don't know but that was what they believed personally they did the right thing to do and after that they they go on their way and i like how 
awkward that interaction was. It, was, it <laughs> almost did feel forced, and I, I think that was totally intentional. It didn't feel like a happy moment. It wasn't meant to feel like a sad moment. It was meant to be two people that are going, hey, bye. Which is fascinating because it's definitely Davis who's the one that's like, is not really fetching for the invite. He's like, okay, well, bye. You're right. Like, there's not really that invite to like further discuss or further move on. But you're right. For us as the audience, it is at least when we enter that scene for us, it's like a big sigh of relief. We're like, Oh man, this, like justice has been served. It feels so mm-hmm. great. But then that final kicker where you're right within the world of the characters, it's yeah. not a big deal. To I mean, them. for us, it's, it's, I definitely think that ending is kind of a little bit of subversion of expectation because it's like, because, uh, you know, Dura nine, you know, McCraddle goes to the uh, aid of Davis first. You think, Oh, well, this is going to end with them like getting a drink together. Like mm. that's like when I thought that they were about to start right. talking to each other, I was like, "Oh, he's probably going to be like, oh, you want to go have a drink?' Mm. Let's be friends." And, and that would just that. be too romantic, too uh, uh, mystical and fair and fairy tale like yeah. compared to very much the grander reality of we were a bunch of strangers before we came into this, and we're going to be a bunch of strangers after we get out of mm. this thing. You know, there'll be months to come where after a few months, I might not even remember your name. I might yeah. see you walking down the street and I won't even say hi. I bet and Davis forgot his name five seconds after. <laughs> probably. It's like, I have to what go be dick. Henry. I have to be Henry Fonda somewhere else. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to yeah. jump into highlight scene? Yeah. Or? Well, frankly, either that would have been my highlight scene, that ending. And yeah. just like what it represents. And so, you're right. Just moving past and justice has been served. And that. Admittedly, one of the few shortcomings of this film is I don't think the music's that interesting. The music's very. Oh yeah, well, classic fifties yeah. music, but like, there's some great. And... It just felt kind of flat. Felt like it was yeah. put in there just because they were like, didn't feel like that. I feel like this film would have even benefited better from not having any film uh, music and just have ambience. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mind the music because it sort of opens and ends with it, but I don't recall there being any dramatic. At least music that it really got in my way or made itself present during the main scenes in mm-hmm. the room. I don't recall that. Okay. Um, and that being said, I should preface that I have I didn't rewatch the film in the last week. I've, I'm purely going off what I remember from my March viewing, which wasn't that long ago, but still, um, I didn't mind the music. I thought I thought it was fine. But if it isn't the ending, my I would probably say my highlight scene is when they're I mentioned it earlier when they they're doing the steps to see how fast that the old man could have come down to to view. I think I love just the mapping of that and the blocking around the room. Yeah, getting it away from the table and getting everyone up and. Like, oh, he would walk faster than that. Again, it's just that there's no hard evidence there. It's just them talking and being like, I guess this would lead to this. They're using common people's knowledge to make these decisions. So I love I love that a lot. I'd say mine would either be a mixture of a one-shot in which uh, all the men gradually walk away from the table as I think it's Jura 10 or 11 is losing his mind pretty much. Oh, it's just on a yeah, big rant. Yeah, a great shot. Um, as they all slowly walk away to face away from him because they're sick of his illogical rants. You know, mm. Jura 3 actually presents some pretty educated arguments in defense of him being a murderer. And mm. definitely, although expresses frustration at times, has some grounded sense in what he's saying. You yeah. know, there's a bit where he throws out everything on the table and there is a picture of his son that he tears up, but it shows that he actually listened to the case and this is just the perception in which he took. But Mm. unfortunately the picture of the sun gives away that there was a bit of outer context that he took in. So although he believed that, yeah. And that was enough to kind of sway uh, 
him into disbelief, basically. But that one shot was really effective, and the glasses sort of construction was that really was good. Cool. It was a really good back and forth because I think he's Jura four or five who's mm. the one with the glasses, and he's way more calm, and he's a very much a logical person. And the way that he gets swayed is solely through a logical argument. And it's mm. solely founded on his own context of being short-sighted. Yeah, and if he didn't have those glasses, then he wouldn't be able to make that own point in his but own head. It's a great example of how logic's used. And, I mean, you brought up another one with the running and uh, the walking in the hallway one mm. um, and the way that scene's blocked. But I, I just like the back and forth of that scene where he's sort of like... You watch in his facial expressions how he, he literally gets convinced before your eyes. Yeah. And it's pretty awesome. I just like that. Great performance as well. Oh, yeah. Well, I think everyone in this... Mm-hmm. I don't think there was a single performance I didn't like, so... Which which juror would you say that was with the glasses? I think it's juror four or five. Okay, because if you go on... If you're, if you're hearing us spout these numbers and you're really confused, you can actually go on Wikipedia and it actually tells you all 12 and who they are. Yeah, the synopsis is actually incredibly helpful in this film. Oh, yeah. The Wikipedia page is delicious. Yeah. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah, cool. yeah. The synopsis for the genera. Uh, it's not the synopsis, like, plot play Oh, I gotcha, play. gotcha, gotcha. Well, I got the um, cast. If you just look up the cast on Wikipedia, it's like, it's it's a little table. If you do get confused of the numbers, that helps too. That's how I found out who's the big players in, in the script. Gotcha. I don't think it's telling me who's the glasses guy. Number three is the most passionate advocate of the guilty verdict. Yes. <laughs> That's definitely an accurate description, I'd say. Um, the rational unf- unflappant Self-assured and analytical stockbroker uh, is number four. Yeah, that's him. Okay, there you go. Yeah, see, I'm I'm forgetting the the um occupations and stuff a little bit. I'm just thinking of where they were placed on the table, and he was next number ah, number three. Clever. And yeah. that's like Fonda and the old man were next to each other, so they were eight and nine. Very nice. So they made it. They make it really good the way they block it because they they seat yeah, them. Yeah. And often they stay near their numbers, so it makes it really easy to follow. That's, I didn't even think of that. Like, mm. just keeping them in their places so you can at least visually determine where they are on the table. And be like, okay, well, mm. that's that and that's that. This is all a great example of how a 180-degree rule means jack shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, on that note, uh, 12 Angry Men is out in wide release. It's go. currently on Stan. It is on Stan. Uh, Mundo. Yes, uh, I've got it on DVD, so yeah, wide release. Ah, perfect. I initially watched it from Fanbase. That's how I rented it from there. No, uh, yeah, Stan. Stan's Dramaramas. So, Jake, what is new in streaming platforms this in week? streaming. I will say before I jump in that last week, I talked a bit about a film called The Five Bloods. I just spouted. I probably should have done a little more research. I didn't realize that this is actually a Spike Lee joint. It's like his new film. I like, oh. oh, I did not realize that. <laughs> I probably would have pointed that out if I knew that. So uh, that's on Netflix right now, I believe. Um, so I might try and watch that later this week. Uh, going into this week, though, Netflix has a new show. I like the title of this. Floor is Lava, Season 1. And it... You know, the, I can't remember the name of it. What's that game show where, like, the the contestants are doing the obstacle courses and, like, the stuff's punching Wipeout. Them. Wipeout, that's it. It's basically Wipeout, but, like, with coloured water on the floor. And they have to, like, try and yeah, okay. not slip in. I was like, that looks kind of There's fun. a really fun Floor is Lava community episode. Oh, really? It's one of the best episodes in the show. Oh, damn. There yeah. you go. That might convince me to watch Community. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's coming to Netflix this week. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. On the aforementioned stand, we've got the Windham, uh, the Windermere Children, which is a 2020 film, so brand new for Michael Sam- Samuels. That's it. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Cherbourg, 
which is 1964, mm-hmm. uh, Amateur Teens, which is a 2015 film, and the first season of the other two, and Rugrats Season 7. So, there you go. We'll watch some Rugrats later. No worries. I like it. And on Disney+, Plus, we have Toy Story of Terror and Toy Story That Time Forgot, which I'm guessing there's a shorts. So, if you're into Toy Story, you can... I would assume so. Five to ten minutes, I'm guessing. The 2009 TV special Prep and Landing, the first season of Muppet Baby's Playdate, and Egypt's Treasure Guardians. And that all comes out on the Friday, as per usual, for Disney+. Plus. Is schedule well uh, none of those things are what we're watching next week on the show we are continuing our cinema side show countdown <laughs> through the decades retrospective we're not doing the short film for Toy Story we're not doing a whole episode on that we are not oh, uh, we've already done Toy Story 4 that was more than enough <laughs> uh, we can do the third one one day yeah, I'm sure we'll eventually get through all of them. <laughs> but yes, uh, we're obviously moving into our 1940s. This was a big poll this week, Jake. But who won and what are we watching? So it's interesting because this is one that we both said off the show. This is po- Out of all the ones polls we've done, this is the one we just had no clue who was going to win. Yes. And it turned out actually won by a fair amount, 21 to 11. So sorry, Casablanca, you lost. In favour of the film we're watching next week, Citizen Kane. Charles Foster Kane is... Sure, he started the war. But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal? Charles Foster Kane is nothing more or less than a communist! Kane, governor. Listen, when the voters of this state and Mrs. Kane learn what I found out about Mr. Kane and a certain little blondie named Susan Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive. The investigation of a publishing tycoon's dying words reveals conflicting stories about his scandalistic life. No worries, this film was directed by, and is our latest director's corner, Mm. Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Well, Orson. Yes. You know what? I had a pun with his name. Now I forgot it. Oh, well, that's a shame. Um, Obviously, this is a director that uh, I love. Um, We've done a film of his before in the past, haven't we? We did. We did The Other Side of the Wind. Um, I definitely will be re... I'll be watching Citizen Kane for the first time. Same. The film that, well, made him famous. And uh, I'll definitely... 25 he was. Yes. This is the magic number, 25. Um, I got two years left. So you got two years left. Uh, <laughs> you got two and a half. Yeah, pretty much two. Uh, let's be honest. <laughs> Getting old. But yeah, I will like to catch that film and obviously maybe hopefully squeeze in. Uh, I have only seen this film. Uh, I, I haven't seen this film. We'll see this film by next week. Uh, Third Man isn't directed by him, but has he's, constantly... he's got a prominent role in it, though, correct? Yeah, and he honestly uh, has gone on to say he had a prominent creative directive in it and it was a big debacle over... Uh, oh, who actually really? directed that film? Yeah, oh, because he said he he wrote most of it and directed most of it, but didn't get the credit for it. Um, a lot of controversy with Third Man and uh, A Touch of Evil, which I have I have also seen. So I'm uh, trying to bring him up on Letterbox now. I think I'm misspelling. Ah, oh, yeah, misspelled his um surname. It's well, it's like Wellies with another E <laughs> at the end there. Um, yeah, his acting credits actually come up before. So let's see. Yeah, A Touch of Evil. Let's see, uh, the other side of the wind. I think the only other film I've seen of his is The Other Side of the Wind. And, of course, The Third Man, which I talked yeah. about not long ago. So I'd like Man. to get at least a few more in before we uh, really bridge into, uh, you know, the rest of his work. But Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a director's corner. Exactly. So gotta do. i got to do that early in the week, because once The Last of Us Part Two is out on Friday, I'm gone, Zeke. I'm a, I'm a fleeting existence on this planet, so... 
I'm going to have to watch all of uh, Orson Welles' films in the first half of this next week. Yeah, no worries. Well, uh, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jay. And we'll catch you next week with Citizen Kane. Rosebud. <laughs>